Today we're going to be looking at a very short book, the book of Obadiah, um, 21 verses, and I can summarize it in one short sentence, Obad-Edom. The Edomites have been bad. They have been bad throughout their whole history. Um, they have a history of persecuting the Israelites. Uh, I'll show you how far back this goes. But during this time when the prophets are speaking, uh, the Edomites, who lived up in the mountains, that literally is a picture of the Edomite mountains, across the Dead Sea from where the Israelites lived, um, they had done something particularly egregious. Um, when the Israelites had been invaded, and we're not sure exactly which invasion it was, it could have been a number of them, when they were invaded and plundered by a, a foreign power, the Edomites, rather than helping, they actually assisted the enemy. And this is particularly egregious when you recognize that the Edomites are the descendants of Esau, the Israelites are the descendants of Jacob, Jacob and Esau are twin brothers. And the twin brother did not come to the assistance of um, his brother in his time of need. And so at one level, the, the message of this book tells us this, failing to care for and assist those in your family of faith is a significant failure in God's eyes. So significant that we just get 21 verses, but it's 21 verses of retribution and reversal. You think you're on the high of those mountains, you're going to be brought low. That's one message that comes out of this book. Um, it, it corresponds with what we learn in Galatians 6. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and we really should be a witness to all people, but it says especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Um, when there's a priority of your care, it should be caring for the family of believers. That's one of the reasons that we have these home churches. And, and yes, the home churches should have ministries where they reach out, but they should be especially caring for the ones in that group and caring well for them and knowing what is going on in that group. However, there's another level at which this book functions, um, and it basically is, is kind of filling out this care for, for people. Amos, which we looked at, um, tells us you're not caring for the needy. It was those who were oppressed and those who were in difficult circumstances, and we saw that last week. Today, Obadiah is going to say you're not caring for your family. We as Christians should be caring for all people. We should be reaching out and kind and compassionate. Um, especially those who are highlighted are, are the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners dwelling in your midst. And especially those in your family. And this book is going to say there's significant consequences for not caring for them. But then it also looks past that, and I think the book really eventually points us to God. And it says this, even though the evidence may not be clear and visible, God is always good and just, and he will set things right. That's what the Israelites would have known. The Edomites, who probably weren't even listening to this message, their, their message is you should have taken care of your brothers. You're going to be judged. But for the Israelites, what they are hearing is the Edomites, who should have been taking care of you, look like they've gotten away with it. Some bad things look like they've happened, don't be fooled. God is going to set it all right. 
And even for them, it's going to take a number of years for this to happen. And like the prophecy rock skipping through time, it's going to happen in 586. It's going to happen uh, in 185. It's going to happen in actually in its fullest form where the Edomites are literally extinguished. There's no such thing as an Edomite anymore. That's going to wait until the 7th century A.D. But God's will is to be patient with people but he will always bring about justice and always set everything right. And in the book of Obadiah, what you learn is that's going to happen even when what you see in front of you doesn't seem like it reflects that. Danny Hayes says this, While Edom was a real nation that was indeed destroyed, there is a sense in which the Bible occasionally will use Edom as a symbol of those, all those who oppose God and his people. The book of Obadiah is perhaps using Edom in both senses. Let me tell you how that works. First of all, um, there are times when Edom is just put out there as they're the representatives of all of the bad people in the world, okay? But there's something else going on here, um, and it has to do with a word play in Hebrew. Um, the word Edom in Hebrew is three letters, an Aleph, a Dalit, and a Mem. It's, a, it's an, a, an E, a D, and an M. The word for humanity is Adam. Edom, Adam. The vowels are the only things that are different. And it seems very clear that what is happening in this book is Edom is a symbol of Adam, humanity. Edom, all of those who oppose Israel, the Edomites, um, who eventually become the, the Edomians. Herod was an Edomian king, Herod the Great. He's still around opposing Jesus Christ himself. They were the symbols of the enemies of God's people. But there's a sense in which this is reflecting all the descendants of Adam, anybody who's opposing God's purposes on the earth. It's all the nations. It's Gentiles. And what it's telling us is this. They will get judged, and we need to have confidence that God will set all things right. Um, even though this is a short book, there's some difficulties in this book. So I've tried to give you some uh, resources on the historical background. And as you'll see in just a minute, the historical background really reflects it could be written in two different time times. Um, I've got a, a pretty long article out there on, the e on Edom and the Edomites to give you this history of, of um, the twin brothers and how there's uh, conflict between them. I'm going to show it to you. And then it just continues down with these two uh, brothers who become nations who are always fighting with each other. And then there's a chart I've had in the past that I've literally revised because of preaching through Joel and, Eda, and, and Obadiah, um, putting the chronological flow together, because with Joel and Obadiah, it's really, really difficult to, to figure out where they go. So I've actually put Joel and Obadiah on the chart twice, because it really could go in either place. And then I've done the same thing with how that fits into the chronological historical background. And then there's another long article, small print, only a few of you should get it. I probably did 15 copies, so just only if you're nuts should you grab this one. Um, it really is on the, the compilation of the minor prophets and, and how, how the minor prophets are assembled. It may appear to you that there's just a, um, a, a random collection. It doesn't fit by size. It kind of goes chronologically, but there's an argument that maybe that's not what's happening. And so how these things are put together, maybe even with catchwords, there are some words that are used in one book that get used in another book, and then that book uses words that get used in another book. That may be how they're, how they're arranged. So there's some pretty interesting chronology there.
Um, How this all fits together, I've talked about this numerous times, there are three sets of prophetic books. They're the pre-exilic prophets, those who prophesy before the northern nation is taken away in 722, and they prophesy before the southern, southern nation is taken away in 586. Then there are the exilic prophets, those who prophesy while they're in exile, And actually, Joel and Obadiah may be during that time. Uh, If you force me to vote, I'm 51% there earlier, but they may be during that time. And then we have three prophets at the end of the Old Testament that are post-exilic after they've been away in exile in Babylon, and they come back. There are three prophets who prophesy at that point. We're talking with Obadiah, a prophet who is prophesying um, to Israel, it looks like it. It looks like that's what's happening. and he, he may be one of the earliest prophets. I've got him located there. But he may be a post-exilic prophet. And the reason why is we know very little about him. Here's the first verse. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom, the vision of Obadiah. That's what we know. We know this is the vision of Obadiah. It doesn't tell us his father. It doesn't tell us his town. It doesn't tell us any kings. We just know Obadiah is speaking. Here's what he's saying. So we have to fill in a lot of blanks. Um, here's a summary of, of that. Uh, fighting and feuding between twin brothers, Esau and Jacob, started in Genesis 27, leads to a national enmity between the perspectives peoples, the Edomites and the Israelites. In an hour of need, when Israel's enemies were knocking at the gates of Jerusalem, the Edomites came to the aid of the enemy. For their unwillingness to serve as their brother's keeper, the Edomites would one day become extinct. Obadiah, an obscure prophet of an unknown background, describes how Edom would be cut off forever, God's people would be vindicated, and God would be recognized as judge over all the earth. That's what we've got going here. Um, Yes, it's the Edomites, but the Edomites are these symbols of anybody opposing God, and it is really humanity's rebellion against God, and God's going to set that all right. Everything that's going wrong, and by the way, going wrong from God's point of view, not just you, okay? This doesn't mean God's going to have vengeance on the people I get frustrated with who won't enter the roundabout quickly. That is frustrating to me. There's times that I'm wanting some vengeance. I'm wanting God to intervene here, and, but if they sit there, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about who are, people who are, who are opposed to God. We're talking about all of the things that go wrong in the world because of fallen nature. So let's get into who, when, uh, where, and why. And by the way, every one of those is debated. Okay? Every one of those is debated about Obadiah. For such a short book, it's got a lot of problems that we have to unravel. Um, now I'm going to start with why is Edom such a big deal? Uh, Doug Stewart again. I love Doug Stewart's writings. Edom was tenaciously and rather constantly hostile from the beginning. This looks like my family from a long time ago. (laughs) Let's see. You like that better? Yeah. You like that mustache on that guy? Edom was tenaciously and rather constantly hostile from the beginning. This factor would itself be enough to cause such a small nation to receive such regular, even prominent mention in prophetic oracles against foreign nations. By the way, throughout the prophets, Edom is kind of hammered on, but Obadiah focuses exclusively on them. But Edom's prominence as an enemy was additionally noteworthy because of its historical position as a brother of the nation to Israel. A lot of people opposed them, but only the Edomites are the brothers. Um, 
Here's kind of the background of that. You could go all the way back to Genesis 25 where the two brothers are born, and literally they're fighting in Rebekah's womb. Um, Throughout Jacob and Esau's life in the latter chapters of Genesis, um, these brothers are bickering back and forth, and, and Jacob is deceiving his brother and stealing his birthright, then deceiving his father to steal a special blessing from him. Um, when the Israelites are coming out of bondage in Egypt and they're going to the promised land, the Edomites say, you can't come through our land. Um, it would have been the easiest way for them to travel, and the Edomites say no. In Numbers chapter 25, there's a prophecy made that says the Israelites are going to have superiority over the Edomites. And then look at all those verses where the Edomites are actually repeatedly attacking the Israelites. They are a consistent problem, but the problem is coming from their brothers, and that's really an issue here. There are then at least three factors that made Edom so prominent among Israel's enemies that could be sometimes functioned virtually as a paradigm for all of them. The sheer chronological length of its enmity lasted so long the constancy and intensity of its enmity, they are constantly bickering. It never stops, and they're always intense about it. And the treasonous nature of it, this is brothers. No other nation quite shared these characteristics. Um, it's pretty significant. Now, who? here we get debated. <laughs> who composed Obadiah? Obadiah's identity remains a mystery. I, should, I could just stop there. We don't know. We usually learn something about the writer, generally his father's name or his hometown and kings reigning during his ministry. This is absent in only two of the prophetical books, Obadiah and Micah, Malachi. We're going to see this later. There is an Obadiah, there's actually 13 in the Old Testament, um, who served as uh, an aide to a king, but it's probably not him. There's 13 Obadiahs, and this is probably one we just don't know anything about. Who's the audience? Well, if you don't know who the guy is, the audience becomes a little tricky. Obadiah's message was clearly about Edom and the Edomites. However, the message would have been designed for God's people in Judah, either before 722 and 860 BC, or a little bit after 586, after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, depending on the dating of the book. The message is about the Edomites, but it's a message for Judah. So if I can put that together. The nation of Edom is the subject matter of this prophecy, but it's difficult to know if they're the recipients of the prophecy. Perhaps it was Judah who received this prophecy as an encouragement to her that God had not forgotten his promise to Abraham and his descendants, nor had Edom acted without God's knowledge. God was sovereign. He was in control. And this is a reminder, hey, it doesn't look like that is what's going on, but God is in control. Bad things are happening all around you. God has a plan but God is in control of all of this. So when was Obadiah written? Now we get to the core real debate here. The date of Obadiah's ministry is not specified in the book, and for that reason, it's perhaps not crucial. Maybe we don't need to know when, but here's some try. Um, Obadiah addresses some specific time when the Edomites did not assist Judah and even participated in the invasion and looting of Jerusalem. This happened often, but six possible dates are often highlighted with two rising to the top. It, this, this could have been any of these six times that uh, the Edomites, when the Israelites are fighting a war, the Edomites assist the enemy. But there are two that look like they are the most prominent. One is in, in Jehoram's reign in 840, and one is in Zedekiah's reign in 586. You put those together, um, it, it basically is either very early in in the history, the Edomites come to the aid of the Philistines and a bunch of Arabian 
uh, tribes that have uh, formed a coalition. And, and they have um, assisted the enemy. And God is saying, yes, they assisted the enemy from, from the very beginning. And they're going to continue to do that, but they're going to be eventually be judged. If it's that invasion by the Philistines and the Arameans, um, if it's those guys, then this is maybe the earliest, Hosea maybe a little earlier, one of the earliest books written, maybe 840 B.C. Um, this is 120 years before the Israelites are even taken and destroyed by the Assyrians in 722. The other huge candidate for this is in Zedekiah's reign. At the end of Judah's, um, Judah's time, when the Babylonians come down and take Daniel and Ezekiel and all of those guys captive, that makes it one of the last books written other than the post-exilic prophets. So either during the time of Elisha or during the time of Jeremiah. It could have been either one. I'm not sure how much it matters because the subject matter says God will set things right to these guys who continually keep messing things up. So where did all this take place? Let me just first of all point out, um, this is Judah. They live up in the hill country. And this is Edom. They live across the Dead Sea up in some rocky mountains. Um, if you've ever seen any documentaries on Petra, Petra is part of Edom. Let me give you a contrast between the two. The mountains of Edom are there on the left, and um, what, what is going to show up in the book as Mount Zion, um, Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, Jerusalem, um, they're all the same place, okay? That's all the same mountain. But you can see that the, the mountains of, of Edom are um, high, they're almost impregnable, and, and these little hills of, of Judah, they're nice and bucolic, but ah, do they seem all that impressive? Um, and I, I know this is a little risky. I've lived both places. This is kind of like comparing the Rocky Mountains to the Ozarks, okay? Rocky Mountains, that's Edom. They're rocky, they're high, they're big, they're giant. The people who live there are proud of them. The, the mountains of of Israel, the, the, the rolling hills, are much more like the Ozarks. The people there, they're kind, they're, they're, they're just good folks. Um, this is what's going on between the two of these places. Let me show you a little bit. Again, that's the mountains of Edom. Up in those mountains, this is going to become important for some verses I'm going to read here in a minute, they have carved places like this. This is up in the mountains. This is one of the 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 fortresses that they have, have carved. And there's back behind that, there's a whole palace complex. Um, here's another one that they've carved at, back into a valley, hidden. I mean, this was a secure fortress of a place. Now compare all of that to the hills of Jerusalem. And, and what you have uh, there before you is, is what's called Mount Zion. It's kind of both hills. Moriah is the hill where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. It's where the, the temple is is built on Mount Moriah. Then there's a valley, the Kidron Valley, and the Mount of Olives. Kind of all that complex is Zion. Zion is this place they're going to. Um, here's, here's how significant Zion is. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you, Mount Moriah. He's, that's where he goes. 
Later on, Solomon's going to build the temple there. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, the, uh, the place provided by David. This, this Mount Moriah, Zion, is prominent throughout the Bible. But the Edomites were like, hey, you live down there on that hill. You're down there on the top of that hill. We're up here in the mountains, and we've got some fortresses going. So it's, this is the contrast. The people who are really proud about their mountains and their fortresses, and the people who live down in, uh, literally, I mean, uh, there's a fertile valley, but there's a little hill that's defensible there. Why was Obadiah written? Obadiah highlights that we should take care of our close relatives, especially those of similar faith. Do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. To do so, to not do so, will have consequences. It also reveals that although it may look like God's enemies get away with treachery, God will always set things right. The Lord is just and good. For those who are Edomites, those who are the, um, not the Edom, but the Adam of the world who are opposing God, you won't get away with it. For the rest of us, we need to remember the Lord is just and he is good. He's just working on a different timetable than you and I. Once again, Doug Stewart says, prophetic oracles against foreign nations, though full of language of doom, are also implicitly messages of hope for God's people. Such oracles look forward to a time when the predicted demise of the nation under attack will open the way for the restored, purified Israel to blossom once again as the flower of all God's plantings. Obadiah's message fits this pattern and in some way even typifies it. So I hope you understand. This is a message about Edom, the enemies, and all the bad things that are happening, but it is a message to Israel to say those bad things are happening. God's aware of it. It's a part of his plan, and he will eventually set it all right. So how does all of this happen? Um, it's 14 verses. Literally, I could read it three more times before the uh, message is over. Um, there's a prologue that just says this is the vision of Obadiah. There's judgment on Edom that's going to come because of their pride and their lack of assistance. And then he's going to focus and make it a little bit wider and say, in fact, all the nations are eventually going to be judged, but the Lord will set everything right, and he will rule from Zion. He'll rule from that little hill. I've got a chart out there. Um, you can see the judgment on Edom, the deliverance of Zion. There's going to be this accusation about their pride, accusation that they didn't assist I've got some maps and pictures and stuff there, and then how it spreads out to all the nations, and then eventually it's going to pull back to, and God will establish his rule. That's encouraging to us. What's the message? Obadiah declared that Edom, a perennial enemy of God's people and a symbol of humanity, who had betrayed Israel and assisted the enemy of the Lord when Jerusalem was sacked, will be brought down from their heights of pride and security, and that Israel will be restored to a place of prominence in the reign of the Lord in order to encourage Israel to realize that the Lord will be just and faithful to his covenant promises. Okay, we've got, four, we've got 21 verses. Let's roll through a bunch of them, okay? Their pride becomes before the fall. By the way, here's one of their fortresses. And Obadiah says this in verse 2. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? They were up there and they felt secure. 
Oh my word, it is totally secure. This place is in a valley, in a hook. It would have been super easy to defend. They felt very secure up high in those mountains and they were proud about it. But God will bring them down. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Can you see, um, if, if you're down in the valley by the Dead Sea, which is literally below sea level, you're looking up in those mountains and maybe you see some fires burning in the night. Those fires are burning up near the stars. He's saying, yeah, you, you, you soar like the eagle up there where those birds are flying. And, and you look like you're among the stars when we look up there. He's going to bring you down. He's going to take care of it. But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. What I have there is a picture of their treasure house. Archaeological expeditions, clearly this wasn't a palace. This was where they kept their treasures when they pillaged everybody who's going by. They're on a highway that's called the King's Highway, and they would come down out of those mountains when somebody had gone into a battle and they're going back to their um, homeland with all of the stuff they've pillaged and they would grab it and stick it in this treasure house. But how Israel will be ransacked? You've been ransacking everybody else. Your treasures will be pillaged. All your allies will, for, will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. You've, those who you trust are going to deceive you just like you have deceived Israel. I'll bring you down in that day, declares the Lord. By the way, this is the day of the Lord in that day, that great and awesome day, the day of the Lord that is both a day of judgment and a day of blessing. The judgment prepares the way for the blessing. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified. Teman's maybe a, an outpost um, that is maybe a little bit lower in the mountains. And everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. I mean, do you see how it's connecting this to, uh, yeah, it's the Edomites, the Edomites, but now we're, this is brotherly. It keeps going back to Esau, Esau. It says this, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. Fascinating as I'm translating through and I get through to violence, the word for violence is Hamas. Think about what's going on in the Middle East now. You want to know what Hamas is? Interestingly, Hamas is, is an abbreviation, it's an acronym, and in Arabic, Hamas stands for the Islamic Resistance Movement. The three letters, the H, the M, and the S in, in, in Arabic are the first letters in Arabic for Islamic Resistance Movement. But Hamas in Hebrew is the word violence. I wonder if the if the Hamas knew, hey, we're going to call ourselves Hamas, and, I want, and, and, and God's people will know it's violence. Hmm, it's interesting. Because of the violence, because of the Hamas against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof with strangers, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in their day of misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You guys stood by, and you made fun of them. But it expands. 
The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done it, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your head. You're going to reap what you sow. And that's not just the Edomites. That's all nations and all people who are resistant to God and what he has done. This is a universal principle. The day of the Lord is coming. As you have done, it will be done to you. But it turns to the good at the end on Mount Zion. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Do you see how it's gone back to now Jacob? Because this is, go, this is brotherly, Jacob and Esau. Um, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. There will come a time when God will fulfill all of his promises. Jacob will possess everything that God has promised him. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Uh, this is probably talking about the reuniting of the, the northern and the southern kingdoms. Jacob's uh, in the south and Joseph were the, was the prominent tribe in the north. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. There will be no survivors from Esau. That happened in about 680 AD. And since then, um, the Esau became the Edomites, the Edomites become the um, Edomians, the Edomians become the Nabataeans, and then they got wiped out. There's no more. By the way, this verse is fulfilled. <laughs> so you can have confidence that all the rest is going to happen. You can have confidence that this is going to be true. Deliverance will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. God's going to come back. He's going to set it all right. And you can have confidence in that. The first thing he said, it's happened. Not in our time, but it happened on his time plan. On his timeline is when it, when it occurred. And this is going to occur on his timeline. So what do we do with all this? Where does all of this fit? Obadiah portrays the reality that sin has consequences, that God will ultimately judge all those who oppose him and rebel against him, especially those who are proud. Pride does come before the fall. And if you're opposing God and you're thinking you can get your own way, in whatever that's happening, you'll be brought down. Obadiah clearly presents the message that God's people will ultimately be vindicated and restored to a place of blessing, even though the world doesn't cooperate. And Obadiah uses Edom, Adam, as a paradigm of what will happen to all humanity, Adam, who remains in opposition to the Lord and his people. They will be judged. God will set things right. So let's, let's figure this out. God is just and he will repay all who have done evil in his sight. That's true. This, bu this book affirms, affirms it. We want to believe it. This book says, yes, it is true. God is patient. He's patient with his people for 800 years before he judged them by the Babylonian captivity. But he won't be patient forever. And ultimately, God will set everything right in the world and justice will be done. So let's be patient Leave justice in the hands of God. Look to Mount Zion because that is where deliverance is found. And trust God to take care of everything that needs to be taken care of. God's sovereign. He's just. He's going to take care of it. I don't have to. I want to. But I would do it so poorly. There would be a lot of people dead in roundabouts if I was in charge of justice. <laughs> but
But God is in charge of justice, and he will, he will deliver justice appropriately, rightly, and in the right time. Trust God to take care of it all. So lay down your desire for revenge. Give it to the Lord who will be just. And now I'm talking about bigger things than roundabouts now. Families that have betrayed you. People in the faith, churches who have damaged you. Co-workers. Lay it down. Look forward to all that God will do to set things right in the world. Because he's coming He's, he's not doing it right now. He came the first time to redeem us, to pay for our sins. He's coming the second time. He is coming a second time. Every prophet has predicted things that have become true, just like Obadiah. And Obadiah says he's coming to set things right. So keep your focus on the kingdom that will be the Lord's. He's coming. He will set it right. Even though the evidence may be clear, may not be clear and visible, God is always good and just, and he will set all things right. This past week, um, in preparing for this message, I came across something that initially you would think didn't fit, and it didn't fit in what I was listening to. It was just a, an ad for a book. Um, but it's this book right here. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. The Moon is Always Round. It's a great book. I'm going to let you hear the author tell you what this book is about. This book, The Moon is Always Round, has come about through conversations I had with my son, Benjamin, after he met his little sister, Layla, in hospital. Layla was born on the 17th of March, 2016, at 10.25 a.m. A few hours later, Ben came to visit her in the hospital. Uh, he gave her a little giraffe called Baza and then he held her. Uh, two things struck me as he held her that day. The first was that she never opened her eyes and the second was that she never made a sound. Layla was stillborn. Later that evening, as I drove Ben home from the hospital, he asked me a question in the car. Daddy, will mummy ever grow a baby that wakes up? I said, Ben, I don't know, but let's pray that she does. And then he said, Daddy, why isn't Layla coming home with us? And I said, because she's gone to be with Jesus. And he said, why has she gone to be with Jesus? And I said, because Jesus called her name and she went to him. He said, will she come to be with us after she's been with Jesus for a day in heaven? I said, no, Ben, when you're with Jesus, you don't want to go anywhere else. He said, why? I said, because Jesus is such a wonderful person. He said, does Layla not like us? I said, Ben, she does like us. She just likes Jesus more. And then he said, Daddy, why isn't she coming home? And I said, Ben, I don't really know why. But then I started to talk to Ben about the moon. I started to tell him that there are days when you can't see the whole of the moon, but we still know that it's round. And I said, Ben, that's a bit like the goodness of God today. 
Today is a day where it's difficult to see the whole of the goodness of God, but we have to remember what the Bible teaches us. God is good. God is always good, even when you can't see it. And this book, The Moon is Always Round, is my attempt to help children with some answers to the questions they have uh, when they face difficult or upsetting circumstances in their life. I want children to come away having read this book knowing that God is good. God is always good, even when you can't see it. Just like the moon is round, the moon is always round, even when you can't see all of it. pages of this book. It's written from the perspective of Ben, the five-year-old. And when it was still just the three of us, and we went to church to say goodbye, my dad asked me in the funeral service, what shape is the moon, Ben? I said, the moon is always round. And dad said, what does that mean? I said, God is always good, even when you can't see it. The moon is always round, and God is always good. Father, remind us of the simple truths that we need to remember. Let us hold fast and stand securely on them especially when we're rocked by the world and even those closest to us, knowing that you are good, you are sovereign, and you will set all things right. Amen.